Those who do not have the power over the story that dominates their lives, the power to retell it, rethink it, deconstruct it, joke about it, and change it as times change, truly are powerless because they cannot think new thoughts. True power lies with those who can control their own story. You are the story that you tell yourselves. For, for heritage to uh, have value, for heritage to matter, you have to have a community there that celebrates it and connects to it. It's easy to get um, stuck in the detail and in the process and, and forget that at the end of the day these things, although they're from the past, they're kind of living and they're carried through to the present and then on to the future, hopefully, if we do our jobs right. Our heritage has shaped who we are as a people and a place today. In this series, we celebrate the stories of Auckland, the Pacific, and beyond. I'm Mark Gosper, and this is the Heritage Talks podcast. Today, we're listening to Joanna Buelo from Auckland Museum. In this talk, Joanna discusses the history of Chinese laundries in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and their connection with Chinese immigration to this country in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, just a little bit of background. Um, uh, for the last probably four years, I've been researching Chinese laundries all over New Zealand. And the book was um, commissioned by the Chinese Poltax Heritage Trust. And for those of you who haven't heard of the trust, it was established in 2004. And that was a couple of years after Helen Clark, when she was Prime Minister, made a formal apology to the descendants of the early Chinese who came to New Zealand and had to pay the poll tax. And the trust actually um, funds research into the history and heritage of the Chinese in New Zealand. And there are a number of books, other books in the pipeline that the trust is, um, has also commissioned. Um, so, um, well, just to start with, before I start, um, this is, laundry tickets were very important things. Um, it was very important to keep track of all the different garments that people dropped into the laundry and you had to make sure you returned the right socks to the right person. <laughs> so this is a laundry ticket um, from the K Wong laundry in Timaru. So we have um, yeah, six handkerchiefs, six pairs of socks, five shirts, two pairs of trousers and five pairs of underpants. And one half would go to the customer and one half would be kept with the clothing. So you had to really be careful you gave the right people the right things. So uh, to just to start with, I'm just going to give a bit of a broad overview. So this is a map of um, Guangdong province, which is right in the south of China. And you've got Hong Kong there and Guangzhou which used to be called Hong, uh, Canton, is there. So uh, there was a long history of immigration um, from this part of China um, from around, to around the whole Pacific Rim from the mid-19th century. So and most of the people who came to New Zealand came from a few counties around the provincial capital of Guangzhou. So um, they came from Punwei, which is just uh, north of um, 
Canton, Toishan, which is down, down here, and Jungseng, which is up there. They spoke different Cantonese dialects, and, but they shared a common farming background. So they formed a small part of a major diaspora around the globe from the mid-19th century. So a lot of events that were happening in China at that time which triggered this exodus around the globe. Um, there was overpopulation, um, disintegration of the traditional farming economy. Um, there were drought and famine and also social unrest and banditry. And China was defeated in the Opium War in 1842 um, and Guangdong was opened up to foreign trade and mass emigration. Under the Treaty of Nanjing, Guangzhou opened as a treaty port and Hong Kong became a crown colony. And it was Hong Kong that was the main jumping off point um, linking the Guangdong villages with countries around the Pacific. Um, and the, the shipping routes all went mainly from Hong Kong. And another, another thing that was happening also were the, was the discovery of gold. Firstly, in, in California in 1848, um, in Canada in 1858, um, in Australia in 1851, and in New Zealand in 1861. Yeah. So this promised new economic opportunities and offered an additional incentive for emigration. The first Chinese gold seekers arrived in New Zealand from the mid-1860s and they um, initially came from the Victorian gold fields um, in Australia at the invitation of the Otago Provincial Council. The Otago economy slumped after there were additional gold discoveries on the west coast of the South Island and a lot of people followed that new rush to the new fields on the west coast so that Otago business people were concerned about the impact on the local economy. So they decided, it was decided to invite um, skilled Chinese miners from Australia. After the gold rushes, many Chinese people returned you know, to China. But those who remained built new lives and established small businesses. They mainly went into market gardening, they opened stores and they opened laundries. Um, others worked on European-owned farms or as cooks in hotels and boarding houses. So they were quite an entrepreneurial group um, and able to adapt to changing economic and social circumstances. In China, as in many cultures, laundry work was a, a task traditionally left to women. So the question is, you know, why did the men who, they were mostly men, women mainly stayed behind in China. So why did the men who moved to New Zealand open commercial laundries? Um, there are a few things. Um, they preferred the independence of running their own business rather than working for Europeans. And laundry work was one of the few occupations open to them, which required little capital and little equipment, you know, they needed the basic equipment to establish. And washing other people's dirty clothes was towards the lower end of the social scale. So they had relatively little competition from Europeans. Um, and it's interesting that some of the early New Zealand laundrymen um, 
apparently, again, their skills in North America. Um, Chinese laundries were well established in the United States from the 1870s. So if you look in papers past, the early newspapers, you find a lot of advertisements um, uh, for laundries called the, the American Laundry, or they'd advertise lately from San Francisco, which is a bit of a clue that they may have you know, learned laundry skills in the US first. Um, and it's likely that other New Zealand laundries opened based on the news of successful North American laundry businesses carried over the networks of Chinese people around the Pacific. And so it was a chain migration. It was a process of chain migration. So um, uncles would um, would would follow. You know, nephews would follow uncles, and brothers would follow brothers. So um, they would join the same occupation and learn the trade once they came to New Zealand. So. Um, and they tended to be grouped according to their county of origin, so that um, in general, Cantonese people from Punwe worked on market gardens. People from Jungseng also did market gardening and also opened fruit shops. And Si Yip people, which were, came from the four counties comprising Toishan, Sunwe, Hoiping and Yungping, mainly went into laundry work, reaching a peak probably in the mid-1920s and then started to decline. So laundries declined a lot earlier, whereas the fruit shops um, and the market gardens kept going for a lot longer. So in the 1920s, in the, which was the heyday of laundry work, um, it was about half as popular as storekeeping which included food shops, and two-thirds less popular than market gardening. And after the decline of laundries, the major occupations in the Chinese community became market gardening and fruit and vegetable retailing, and also food re retailing. There were 5,000, about 5,000 Chinese in New Zealand in 1881, and that, they made up only about 1% of the population. But anti, they were highly visible and anti-Chinese sentiments were very strong throughout the British Empire. Um, and they, they faced multiple hurdles of immigration restrictions, racial prejudice and cultural and language barriers. And they were seen as alien and inferior. And in the colonial era, anti-Chinese attitudes sprang from a complex set of beliefs and values about the superiority of the European race and European technology, um, fear of economic competition, and fear of racial intermixing. And together with other British colonies, Australia and Canada, in 1881, the government introduced immigration restrictions in the form of a 10-pound poll tax per person arriving in the country. There's only Chinese and a limit on the number of Chinese allowed to travel on each vessel. And the government raised the poll tax in 1896 to 100 pounds, which was equivalent to about $19,000 today. So that was a lot of money. So it meant that Chinese immigrants arrived indebted to family or clan members, and institutional racism limited their work opportunities to a narrow range of occupations. 
And between the 1880s and the 1920s, anti-Chinese attitudes strengthened in New Zealand as expressed in the harassment of Chinese people and the rise of organisations such as the Anti-Chinese League, the Anti-Asiatic League and the White New Zealand League. This um, 1904 cartoon uh, depicts a stereotypical view of relations between Chinese and laundrymen and their customers. It's probably a bit difficult to see from your, from your distance, but what's happening is irate customers are throwing a bottle through the window of a Chinese laundry in Mulsworth Street in Wellington after the owner refused to give them their laundry because they didn't have a ticket. They'd lost their laundry ticket. So after the owner refused, there's a bit of a street brawl, as you can see in the last, uh, in the last one here. And Donnybrook Frere is actually a slang term for a brawl or a riot. And this is another poster from 1908. Um, it shows Premier Sir Joseph Ward. He's wearing a Union Jack waistcoat and he's kicking a Chinese laundryman out of New Zealand. Um, but contemporary newspapers give quite a one-sided view of interactions between Europeans and Chinese, um, selectively reporting negative events such as larrikinism and police raids on so-called opium and gambling dens. Although Chinese business people were sometimes harassed and even physically assaulted, European customers generally accepted them and dealt with them every day. Um, purchasing fruit and vegetables and imported Chinese goods from Chinese stores and taking their clothes to be laundered. So these sort of everyday interactions countered anti-Chinese sentiments to some extent. Um, and Chinese immigrants were also quite philanthropic. Um, they, would, um, they established charitable organisations within their own communities and they also made donations to local charities, to hospitals, orphanages... Um, and also contributing to fundraising campaigns, for example, during the First World War, the Red, Red Cross appeals and so on. So this is a poster ball which was held in Wellington Tyne Hall in 1911 and it was in aid of the Society for the Protection of the Health of Women and Children, which later became the Plunkett Society. And... Wing Lee was a Chinese laundryman in Wellington, a very early one actually. He opened his laundry in Molesworth Street in 1896 and by 1911 he was trading in Hopper Street in Tayaro. So here he is attending the fancy dress ball dressed as a Chinese laundry. So you can see his sign there and he's standing underneath it and he's got a sort of an ironing board in front of him, and he's ironing collars and so on. <laughs> so he, this is an example of, you know, he was contributing to a fundraising event. And this is what the... Um, and he actually won the prize for the most inventive costume. And this is what was reported in the, in the Evening Post. The Chinese laundry was extremely clever and original, and there was little fear of it being overlooked. For every now and again, it would come trundling along the hall, its occupant uttering weird cries, touting for custom, and now and then shedding garments from his counter on the floor. 
So men's starch shirts and collars were the mainstay of Chinese laundries. And there was an emerging middle class in New Zealand um, from the late 19th century, so that good grooming and clean clothes signified gentility and social status, hence the term white-collar workers. So you've got you know, professionals, businessmen and clerks, all of whom needed clean collars every day. So you would detach your collar and, and, and have your collar washed every day and have a new one. So hence you need to take your collars regularly to the Chinese laundry. And other major customers um, of Chinese laundries were the Freemasons, which is quite interesting because the Freemasons really placed great, great emphasis on formal dress and ceremony and they had all their regalia and all these formal occasions with the starched front shirts, you know, you call them penguin shirts. So they were quite regular customers too. Now, these are quite interesting trademarks for Chinese laundry glaze. And reinforcing the notion of Chinese laundry's expertise, advertisements touted premium cleaning products as Chinese, describing them as an ancient Chinese secret for transforming a pile of dirty clothes to clean, fragrant linen. From the 1890s, New Zealand newspapers regularly advertised Chinese laundry glaze. And according to the advertising spin, it's probably not so easy to see that one, for Mandarin brand, it was invented in 1701 by Sing Li, the chief Mandarin of the imperial laundry in Peking. Imitated by many, equaled by none. Um, the earliest uh, Chinese laundrymen traded in the major cities from the 1800s. As most of their custom was local and few provided a collection service, they relied on customers coming to them and being within walking distance of their customers. They were usually small businesses run by one or two partners, often from the same clan or village. And some of the reasons for their survival um, in competition with European steam laundries, which started to develop from the late 1800s. They varied their hours according to the volume of work that they had. They worked probably around 12 hours a day with only short breaks. And they traded in city centres where they were easily accessible to customers. No job was too small for them to do and they provided punctual service. Laundries were mainly in rented premises, often traded for short periods and they often changed ownership or moved locations. Average earnings for laundry were around six to ten pounds a week um, before they had to pay rent, probably three or five shillings a week, rates, overheads, and they also um, sent remittances back to families in China. So it was very much a matter of earning money in New Zealand to support families back in China. Um, another factor for the success of Chinese laundries was their skill. Uh, starching men's detachable start collars and shirts was time-consuming, uh, required individual treatment and finishing. So it was a niche market, enabling Chinese laundries to compete with mechanised steam laundries. So they, the European laundries, generally left that detailed work to the Chinese. So Lem Yi was a laundryman in Christchurch. He had um, a laundry 
for a man 40 years in Christchurch. And this is his 12-step process, just to give you a feel for just what a process it was to starch a collar. So you, you boiled starch, you um, added the starch to the and into a tub with the collars, squished them around. You had to squeeze the starch out. Then each of the collars you had to smooth individually and remove. You had a wadden board and even out the starch and remove the excess. And then the collars were hung on a long wooden rod with hooks, individual hooks, probably about 50 hooks. And then they were put in the... They had little stud holes, so they were hung on this long... Then, then they were, after they were in the drying room, they were pressed and stacked in, in piles and left overnight. So they were actually weighted down with a box of bricks. Then you had a, a special machine which was gas-heated with a gas-heated roller to roll out the collars and flatten them. And that gave them a gloss. And then you... Um, then you return the collars to the drying room on trays to harden the starch and take any remaining dampness out. Then you had to roll with an iron again to make them curved again because they'd all been flattened in the whole process. So you can see that that's quite a lengthy process and a lot of these laundries would process hundreds of collars. So there was a major urbanisation in the early 20th century of the general population and also of Chinese. So by 1926, almost 71% of Chinese New Zealanders lived in cities. The majority were in Wellington and Auckland. And then as the cities spread and tram lines went out and the suburbs expanded in the cities, Chinese laundries started to open up in the, in the suburbs. So they sort of spread from the centre of the city to the suburbs. So you can see from the chart that um, Chinese laundries is the lower, lower graph. They increased steadily to the mid-1920s to a peak probably around 1925, 26. And they were in towns all across New Zealand from Bluff in the south right up to Hikurangi and Dargaville and Whangarei in the north mainly in the main shopping streets. During the Depression, number, numbers dropped. Um, and although laundry business recovered to some extent after the Depression, they, they, they never increased to their pre-Depression peak. So you can see there's a steady decline from the 1930s to the 60s. There was a brief boom in the Second World War when American troops were based in New Zealand, particularly around Auckland um, and Wellington, um, and they were billeted in camps. Um, and in Wellington, the, the Americans would come around visiting all the Chinese laundries in Wellington with their bags of laundry, saying, how many bags of laundry can you take this week? And they were very, most of them were very small operations, so they could only take one or two bags. So it was a very busy time for Chinese laundries. Uh, but at the same time, the overall laundry trade was declining. With lots of men were away in training camps and serving overseas. And also basic laundry supplies, such as coal and coke, for heating the stoves in the drying rooms and for heating the irons. 
starch, soap and brown paper for wrapping all the parcels of laundry were in short supply. And then um, from the late 1930s, um, Chinese families in New Zealand were reunited. Um, Japan invaded China in 1931 and by 1937 occupied most of the north and east of the country. And by 1938, the Japanese were advancing along the south of China towards Guangdong and the home villages of the Chinese men who'd migrated to New Zealand. So the crisis unified the Chinese community in New Zealand and the New Zealand Chinese Association, which was established nationally in 1937, worked hard raising funds to support the, the war effort in China and supported by the Presbyterian Church, they lobbied the government to allow their wives and children to come to New Zealand to join them. Though the government finally agreed in 1939 and the families entered the country as refugees, but it was only for, initially only for two years and they was, the wives and the children were supposed to return after two years. But the war dragged on and there was a period of great uncertainty for the Chinese people here. But eventually, um, the government was persuaded to allow them to stay permanently. So overall, over 1,400 Chinese women and children um, became permanent residents. And they had security once again. And it really was a watershed in the history of the Chinese in New Zealand. A whole new generation of Chinese New Zealanders was born in New Zealand. And the wives took part in the family businesses and it allowed family businesses to grow with the help of wives and the children as they grew up. And a lot of the people, um, the sons and daughters of Chinese laundrymen that I've interviewed around New Zealand, a, a real theme is that the children were very much part of the, uh, a close-knit family and they helped with the laundry chores from when they were very young. There was um, Jin Sing Foon, who established the Ming Sung Laundry, which was on the corner of Pitt Street and Grays Avenue in around 1932. So Jin Sing Foon was born in 1866, and in the early 1900s, he came to New Zealand and joined others from the Jin clan in Auckland. He probably joined a kinsman to work in a laundry and learn the trade for a few years. Um, and directories list a laundry at 130 Grays Avenue under the business name Kwong Lee from 1904 to 1932. And in 1926, Jin Sing Foon bought his son, um, Jin Ming Wood, from China, who was 16 years old, to help in the laundry. After several years working in New Zealand, um, Ming Wood returned to China to marry. Um, he married Yong Su Oi. Her married name was Jin Yong Si. Um, they had a son, Raven, or Ray, who was born in 1930 in China. And Jin Ming Wood returned to New Zealand to help his father in the laundry and earn money to support his wife and child and extended family in China. Um, and in 1932, Jin Sing took over the laundry in his own right and named it the Ming Sung Laundry. And um, Jin Ming Wood's wife and son did not come to New Zealand until 1940. 
and it was the first time he'd seen his son, who was 10 years old. And Jin Sing Foon re retired back to China sometime after that. And Jin Ming Wood and Yong Si had five more children born in New Zealand. Um, uh, Anne, Shirley, Connie, Roland, Roland. Third generation New Zealander Connie Cum. The, um, the, the shop actually had power lines outside, but we didn't have any power. It was all by candlelight. And I remember my mother saying, when she was having numbers two, three, and four, Pam, perhaps, three, four, and five, the nurses would say, um, Mrs. June, you are working far too hard, or Mrs. Sung, you're working far too hard, you should go to bed earlier. You know, you've got all these children to look after, and you're, you know, you're about to give birth to another baby. And what she would do was that she would get a blanket and cover over the, um, the front so that you couldn't see that the lights, the candle lights were on. And I do remember, I'm that old, um, being in the laundry... Um, 1946, I suppose, with a pot-bellied stove and having... Well, I didn't do it, but my sister must have, getting these irons and taking them out to put on the... Um, you know, to do the ironing. We, in 1949... 49, Ronnie? Were we at the time? We went to Christchurch. My mother went to... My mother and Ray went to China for a few months and uh, we were sent to Christchurch because... Obviously, Dad couldn't cope with all of us, so my eight-year-old sister was left at home to help Dad in the laundry. Can you imagine? We came back, and I remember vividly seeing on the shelf cans, tins and tins of tomato, empty tomato sauce bottles. So she obviously had a diet of rice and tomato sauce, and Dad would have rice and salted fish. I mean, this is a forget. I mean, how was he going to run the laundry, look after? No. My, daughter, my sister was there to help her. So, you know, this is what the, the times. And as you said, um, there were two bedrooms upstairs for all eight of us. Yep. At the time, my grandfather actually stayed when my brother and mum came to New Zealand. He stayed for probably a couple of years before he went back to China to look after grandma. So he was retired and went back, so we always had the two bedrooms. Um, so there was eight of us in the two bedrooms. Not a problem. Downstairs we had this pot buddy stove for heating for... No, for heating for the, for the iron, for the, um, the ironing the shirts, but for cooking we must have had a coal range, outside toilet, I don't believe we had a bathroom. But, you know, we existed. We survived. What would, what would they say now about that? <laughs> oh, could you tell the story about you sewing the socks together? Oh, yes. Well, I wasn't doing any of that when I was at, the, at 40 Pitt Street. But in 1950, we emigrated up to 68 Pitt Street to this concrete building, which you can still see if you go to 68 Pitt Street. Um, it's next to the fire station. There's two shops, the one by the lane. And if you look at the corner, you'll see that as what Joanna had said, that they put washing lines above the roof. You know, so it's got a flat roof and, okay, there wasn't enough land to put the um, washing lines downstairs, so more went upstairs. Um, and I, being the youngest girl, I think my two young brothers were a bit young to do too much except make a mess at that stage. Um, they would have the ironing duties because they were older, they could cope. So I, at about, I don't know, I must have been about seven, I suppose, had the job of sorting out the dirty laundry. And as Joanna said, there were these tickets. But OK, but you've got this pile of washing. How do you keep track of it? We had these little wee 
tapes, which I suppose it would have been 10 of one, so that's how you tabbed. Collars had, no, shirts have buttonholes, right? So you can thread a tape through that to say that belongs to that particular um, packet. Um, Hankies, how do you do that? You have to, um, that and socks, you have to then, well, socks you have to sew them together, or, or no, link them together with a, obviously with a big, I don't know, needle? Needle, must have. Needle and then you tie the tab, yeah. tie the tab around them. The hankies, I can still remember the hankies. You know, they could stand by themselves. Can you imagine? Men blowing into <laughs> And then throwing it in for washing. Um, at the same time as this was going on, um, there were major economic and social changes in New Zealand from the 1950s, which spelt the end of Chinese laundries. Uh, there was the post-ball baby, baby boom and suburbs expanded and it was a real period where New Zealanders focused on domestic priorities. You had a house on a, on a quarter acre section with a laundry and a washing line and in an era of new prosperity, affordable consumer goods flooded the market. So like um, electric washing machines, irons, spin dryers and so on. Self-surveyed laundromats opened from the 1950s, offering a cheap and convenient alternative to washing at home, and nationwide chains of dry cleaners opened branches around the country. <coughs> and also fashions changed. Um, new easy care synthetic fabrics that didn't need starching or ironing, um, and dress standards were much more casual. And also the younger generation didn't really want to continue in the laundry business going on to higher education and moving into other occupations. By the 1970s, few laundries traded, and many laundry families went on to purchase fish and chip shops, takeaways, or restaurants. That was the, a new, new business they could move into. Dr. Boileau has written a book on the Chinese laundries in New Zealand, which is due for release later this year. This research was commissioned by the Chinese Poll Tax Heritage Trust. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for tuning in. The Heritage Talks podcast is produced regularly for your education and enjoyment. Talk notes are found on the Talks page at soundcloud.com. Come back whenever you like and feel free to add the podcast to your favourite RSS feed or iTunes. All links are in the talk notes.